0: You're listening to J-Air, community radio broadcasting on 88FM and streaming live on the internet at j-air.com.au. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of the Israel Connection that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. To start with today, I'm playing the speech that Gilead Arden, the permanent representative of Israel to the United Nations, delivered to yet another UN Security Council briefing on the Middle East. Stay tuned for my live interview with Michael Shamir about the Iranian nuclear terror state which will follow this.
1: Madam President, today is Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of the Jewish month of Av. It is the saddest day on the Jewish calendar, it is a day of solemn mourning, a day of fasting and prayer during which we commemorate the destruction of both our temples. On this day, 2,600 years ago, the first holy Jewish temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonian Empire, and we were exiled from our homeland to Babylon. We returned, we rebuilt, and Jewish sovereignty was restored. Yet again, on this very day, nearly 2,000 years ago, our second holy temple was razed to the ground, this time by the Roman Empire, and the Jewish people were once again dispersed among the nations, exiled from our homeland. On the 9th of Av, today, the Jewish people mourn what we lost. Our holy temple has not been rebuilt since then and today Jews can only pray at the temple's only remaining structure, the Wailing Wall. But, thank God, Jewish sovereignty has once again returned to the Jewish homeland and above all to Jerusalem, our eternal capital. Sadly, the idea of the Jewish people coming back home and rebuilding the Jewish state is a concept that the Palestinians have always refused to accept. And they use every tool at their disposal to attempt to destroy the realization of the Jewish people's 2,000-year-old dream to live freely in the land of Israel, in the land promised to Abraham by the Almighty the land in which so many of my ancestors were forcefully exiled from by other nations, the holy land of Zion that Jews have lived in continuously for thousands of years. But the Palestinians' arsenal of weapons to destroy the Jewish state is never the focus of these meetings. Colleagues, the Palestinian Authority with its mandated incitement in school textbooks poisoning the minds of students or its pay-for-slave policy handing money to terrorists has spawned a generation of hate-filled youth. Hamas and the Islamic Jihad joined, they joined the Palestinian Authority in the glorification of martyrdom and even initiated terrorist summer camps where they educate children that murdering Israelis is the only path and train them to do so. Shockingly, this fact was not even mentioned in the Secretary General's recent report on children in armed conflict. But do not be fooled. The primary threat is not only terror organizations. The Palestinian Authority is fully responsible for promoting terror demonizing Israel and Jews, and delegitimizing the Jewish people's right to a homeland. This was true of the Palestinians' leaders in 1947, when they rejected the UN's partition plan, and it remains true until this very day. The outcome of this hate and refusal to work towards a solution is that terrorists are emboldened, and Palestinian terror prevents any chance for progress. Since the beginning of this year, over 4,000 Palestinian terror attacks have been committed against Israelis, 28 innocent civilians have been murdered, including young children, and hundreds have been injured. Although the UN refuses to verify our reports, these are the facts. This is what is truly happening on the ground. A few weeks ago, a Palestinian rammed a pickup truck into a crowded bus stop in Tel Aviv. He then exited the vehicle, pulled out a knife, and proceeded to stab every person he could lay his hands on. Sabah Gavriot, one of the victims injured in the attack, was pregnant, and due to her injuries, she tragically lost her baby, which she only had as a result of two long years of IVF treatments. This is the horror that Israelis must face, Palestinian terrorists who accelerate into bus stops with pregnant women and children. These acts of terror and those who perpetrate them must be condemned, if not by President Abbas, because he never condemns them, then at the very least by the UN and its bodies. I'm not talking about a general condemnation of terror. When I hear the words, I condemn all acts of terror, as the Secretary General recently stated, I cringe. Are these barbaric acts of Palestinian violence not deserving of a more detailed description? Are Israeli victims of terror so insignificant that they are merely generalized? Do the terror organizations perpetrating these attacks not have names? Those responsible must be held accountable. Saba Gavriot lost her baby because she was run over and stabbed by a Palestinian Hamas terrorist. Is that so hard to say? Show the Palestinians and the world that you think Hamas is committing heinous crimes and also harming the Palestinian people. Distinguished council member, today, I not only want to describe the situation on the ground, but also ask what would you do in the face of relentless terror? Would you sit patiently and wait for the next attack? Would you rely on the international community to come to your aid? Over the past years, Jenin and its refugee camp in particular, I'll get to that later, has become a hotbed for terrorist activity. It is a place ruled by designated terror organizations such as Hamas and Islamic Jihad. It is where so many of the recent deadly terror attacks, over 50, were planned and carried out from. And it is a city of refuge for terrorists on the run. Jenin is a cancerous tumor of violent Palestinian extremism and terror. So I ask again, what would you do? For Israel, just like any other country, the answer is clear action must be taken in order to prevent the next terror attack. Here are the facts this is what really happened in Jenin, and any other version of the events is a blatant lie and a distortion of reality. Israel launched a two day, two day surgical counter terror operation focused solely against Jenin based terror infrastructure, targeting innocent Israeli civilians. Throughout this tactical operation, 12 Palestinian terrorists were killed, two terrorist command centers were uncovered, two shafts to terror tunnels were sealed, five explosive-making labs were found, and hundreds of IEDs and weapons were discovered. Weapons catches were uncovered in mosques. The Janine governmental hospital was overtaken by terrorists who used it as cover when firing at Israeli forces. Explosives were being stored mere meters from an UNRWA school and kindergarten. Terrorists planted IEDs all along the main roads in the center of the camp. Yet despite the terrorist cynical use of Palestinian civilians as human shields and critical civilian infrastructure as cover, Due to Israel's efforts and care, there was not a single civilian casualty during the operation. Any military expert would tell you that this is a remarkable achievement that defies all odds. Israel does everything possible in order to avoid collateral damage and civilian casualties. So imagine my shock when rather than commending Israel for uprooting terrorists with surgical precision, The Secretary General condemned only Israel, making claims completely detached from reality. Rather than lambasting the terror organization for exploiting innocent Palestinians and murdering Israelis, he panned Israel for defending itself. The Secretary General and UN bodies, you heard it also here today, repeated brazen Palestinian lies about Israel preventing the excess of humanitarian and essential care. The exact opposite is true. Throughout the operation, Israel ensured that there was a constant humanitarian corridor and that ambulances could tend to the wounded. Any claim otherwise is a fabrication. The fact that the Secretary General chose to condemn Israel a law-abiding democracy, as opposed to the bloodthirsty Palestinian terrorist seeking to murder innocent Israelis, is a disgrace, and such remarks only embolden the terrorists. Words carry immense weight, dear friends, and if one has not taken the time to study and analyze the fact, it is far better to refrain from saying anything that may cause damage. Rockets have already been fired at Israel from Jenin, And if Israel did not take action now against the growing terror, we would have to operate later on and on a much larger scale. This preventative operation should have received full support from all Council members. Yet seeing as it didn't, I ask what would you have us do instead? We constantly hear calls For de-escalation, statements are made about improving the situation on the ground. We agree. Yet, how can any responsible actor utter such words while completely ignoring the side truly responsible for the death and destruction? Precision strikes on terror targets were necessary only because the Palestinian Authority neglected Jenin, handing it over to terror groups. Time after time, Israel requested that the Palestinian Authority combat the growing terror infrastructure in Jenin. But time after time, the Palestinian Authority refused. Suddenly, as you heard here today, following Israel's counter-terror operation, President Abbas felt safe enough to visit Jenin for the first time in a decade. And the PA security forces are finally beginning to show signs of enforcing law and order. Yet here in these halls, the truth is ignored while Palestinian lies are accepted at face value. But today, distinguished council members, I would like to utilize the fact that we are focused on Jenin's refugee camp to share with you the ultimate proof that the Palestinians have no interest in peace, but only in the Jewish state's destruction. The proof is the very existence of Janine's refugee camp and all the other Palestinian refugee camps. Think of it. How can it be that after so many decades there are still refugee camps inside Palestinian cities? It is mind-boggling that after nearly a century there are still Palestinian refugee camps in Syria, Lebanon and Jordan, where, by the way, the residents are treated like third-class citizens. In most of these camps, Palestinian refugees are not even given citizenship and are prevented from working in decent jobs, all in order to preserve the problem and perpetuate the conflict with Israel. But to think that today, within an entity that claims its goal is to establish a functioning Palestinian state and peace, of course, peace, There are still Palestinians who are relegated to refugee camp decades after first arriving in them is impossible to fathom. Members of the Council, have you ever stopped to ask yourself why the descendants of descendants of Palestinian refugees are still living in refugee camps? Why have they not been integrated into Palestinian society? What is the reason for this? We are talking about camps in Palestinian cities. If the PA's main goal is truly to establish an independent state, then these second and third generation refugees would be living in regular Palestinian cities and not camps. But this is not the Palestinians' goal. Their goal is the annihilation of the Jewish state. And one of their weapons to achieve that goal is brainwashing generation after generation of Palestinians that Palestinian cities are not and will not be their homes. After all, they are still refugees. Their home is in Israeli cities such as Haifa, Tiberias, Tzfat, and many others. Palestinian leadership does not aim to live beside the Jewish state, but rather to destroy and replace the Jewish state. And they plan to do so by one day flooding Israel with over 5 million and counting so-called Palestinian refugees. This is why there are still refugee camps in Palestinian administrative area. From Nablus, Jenin, and Tulkarem to Bethlehem, Ramallah and Jericho. This is why the descendants of Palestinian refugees are still separated from Palestinian society. But this plot to destroy the Jewish state would be impossible without the help of a very important partner, the UN and its destructive agency, UNRWA. What makes the descendants of Palestinian refugees different from all other refugees? Why must there be a separate UN agency for Palestinian refugees, while all other refugees from Syria, Sudan, Ukraine or Afghanistan are aided by the UNHCR? Why isn't UNRWA's primary goal to settle refugees to end their identity as refugees? This functional system has no parallel anywhere else in the world and is a huge part of the problem. When the UN and the international community promote an agency that preserves refugee camps and the refugee identity, nearly a century after the problem began, then all that is accomplished is the perpetuation of the conflict. UNRWA continues to feed the Palestinian people a lie that the world supports their right of return. That as long as the original refugee, along with their children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, have still not returned to where they came from, they will always be excluded from society and they will forever remain branded as refugees. Let me be clear, there is no right of return, you all know this. The demand of returning millions of descendants of refugees is a demand to obliterate the Jewish people's right to self-determination, and this will never happen. If the aim of these meetings is to remove the obstructions to solving this conflict, then here is one of the most fundamental obstructions, the perpetuation of Palestinian refugehood both by the Palestinian Authority and, sadly, by this very organization, UNRWA. Yet, this is not the only obstruction ignored by the international community. On August 1, 2014, two hours into a UN-brokered humanitarian ceasefire, Hamas terrorists murdered Lieutenant Hadar Goldin and abducted his body. Almost exactly nine years later, Hamas still refuses to return Hadar's body nor the remains of Oron Shaul, another soldier they murdered and abducted. The same can be said of Avera Mengisto and Hisham El Sayyad, two Israeli civilians suffering from mental illness who are currently being held captive by the terror organization in Gaza. This is a flagrant violation of international humanitarian law that must be at the top of this Council's agenda. Nevertheless, hardly any action has been taken to pressure Hamas to return our boys. This Council could play a focal role in rehabilitating the Gaza Strip. Hamas and the other Gaza terror groups hell bent on destroying Israel are an obstruction that this Council should focus on, yet in these meetings many of you prefer to fixate upon marginal non-issues, while falsely branding Israel as the primary impediment to improving the lives of Palestinians in Gaza. Distinguished Council Member, while the Palestinians with their incitement, terror and rejectionism remain the only obstacle to any solution, they are not the only threat that Israel faces or the singular danger to regional stability. Iran and its terror proxies are becoming more emboldened every day. The Ayatollah regime is responsible for providing funds, weapons, manufacturing know-how and directives to terror groups both along Israel's borders and in Gaza and Judea and Samaria. As a result, tensions have been drastically increasing. But it is along Israel's border with Lebanon that these rising tensions are reaching a point of no return. And when the situation explodes, which it will, sadly, if immediate action is not taken, the consequences for the region will be disastrous. Over the past year, the designated terror organization Hezbollah, in flagrant violation of Security Council Resolution 1701, has erected concrete military outposts and observation towers along the Blue Line. Recently, Hezbollah terrorists crossed into sovereign Israeli territory and erected tents guarded by Hezbollah operatives. Hezbollah continues to operate freely in Unifil's area of operation, holding military drills with live fire and attacking UN peacekeepers. These inflammatory steps are not only a spit in the face to this council and its resolutions, they are also going to be the spark that ignites the entire region. Why doesn't the Council hold emergency meetings on this deteriorating situation before it's too late? I truly have no answer to this question. Madam President, Israel can protect its borders and citizens from any and all threats, whether by terror organizations or by rogue regimes that call for our annihilation. But the time has come for the international community to stand alongside Israel in this fight or at the very least refrain from falsely condemning Israel. We are defending ourselves from extremist forces that want to export their violent ideologies globally. If this body and the organisation it is part of refuses to hold the terrorists accountable for their crimes, the situation on the ground will only continue to deteriorate. And as long as this council doesn't address the true impediments to reconciliation, A solution will never be possible. The only way, Madam President, to de-escalate is to hold those accountable accountable and to put an end to Palestinian obstructions. Thank you, Madam President.
0: Sir Giladon, uh, the Israeli representative of the United Nations, uh, spoke again, this time alluding to the scandal of the perpetuation of Palestinian refugee camps. Uh, following the outbreak of fighting between the Palestinian Authority's ruling Fatah Party and Islamic groups in a refugee camp in Lebanon, where at least 11 people have been killed, including a high-ranking PA general. Now, my guest today on The Israel Connection is Michael Shamir, a local figure, and educator, whose knowledge and experience of politics and particularly on the Iranian nuclear terror threat makes him a go-to person to help understand what Michael refers to in a lecture series that he has developed as Iran, the arch-octopus of international nuclear terrorism. Welcome to the program Michael. Thank you David, for having me. It's good to see you and uh, we're going to have a a bit of a discussion on a topic that has been on Jair this afternoon on one of the other programs. So, Michael, uh, people who don't know you, uh, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about your background and how you came about developing a lecture series about the nuclear terror threat that's coming from Iran. Uh,
2: First, I was a major in the Israeli Air Force. I was interceptor, I was instructor, and I was a commander of the special operations in the operational uh, arena in the, in the banker, what you know, the banker. And then I studied in Tel Aviv University. I have two degrees, one degree in political science and international affairs. And I'm specializing in the Pacific, Japan, Middle East, America and Europe. The other degree is uh, in psychology. I'm a psychologist and I focus on teenagers and elderly. And then I was in North Queensland for 15 years. I was teaching in churches because there are no Jews over there. And I gave public uh, lessons about uh, psychology and about international affairs, Israel and the Bible.
0: So you've uh, developed a lecture series uh, about the nuclear threat, which I think is about uh, four two-hour sessions, and uh, we... I'm not going to be able to uh, cover all the material that's in that uh, lecture series, but the uh, beginnings of it are giving a lot of the background to uh, what is the situation with Iran today. But let's go back uh, to uh, a decision that Israel made in 1981 first and and understand uh, why Israel decided that it needed to take out Iraq's nuclear reactor at that time.
2: Uh, Yes, it was uh, just a process. It didn't happen by one night. And I can tell you that I was in that process from the beginning. And in 1976, I was called to the bunker by uh, somebody, Captain Katz. You know, Katzler is dead because he was shot over Lebanon. Anyway, uh, we saw a picture in Baghdad, just a small picture. And then we began to follow this up. And Saddam was uh, an extreme enemy to Israel, and he was threatening all the time to destroy it. He was talking exactly like the Iranians today. And the French government under Chirac, Jacques Chirac, built a nuclear reactor in Baghdad, which was capable to enrich uranium to military uh, capacity. Of course, we knew about this through the intelligence Mossad, and uh, I was uh, one of the process of just getting intelligence by sending airplanes to know uh, what's happening, because Menachem Begin wanted to know what's really is happening on the ground. So, uh, Israel got the intelligence about his plans, and as always, the military was uh, preparing an option for the civil government. And in the beginning, uh, at first, Israel tried to destroy parts in France harbor, you know, parts of uh, the facilities that they were sent to Baghdad. Then they killed some of scientists that the Mossad, uh work, but the the French stained had they succeeded to go ahead in Baghdad. so once the reactor was operating it was operating and warm, it was too late, so we had to take it out before it was warm and operating and because of the consequences on civilians and all the area, we didn't care about the military, but we cared about civilians. So Begin gave the order to destroy it, on, especially on Sunday, because on Sunday the French were not working over there. So he cared about the French, not about the Iraqis.
0: So how many people were killed in the, uh, the takeout of the uh, nuclear reactor? Did, did you... One French, one technician
2: that he was sub- stubborn on Sunday, he didn't <laughs> go to church, he went to the facility, and about six to eight other Iraqis. That's all. <laughs> and my friend was the commander of this. There was, he's a friend of mine. He's still a friend. But yeah.
0: so, there's, uh, so there's a lot of things that went on, as you say, in the bunker, which you can't uh, tell us because, of course, it's uh, endangering uh, Israel's uh, national security and, of course, it's needing to be uh, on its toes as well when it comes to uh, the situation with Iran that we're going to talk speak about in a minute. But what was the world's reaction at the time to Israel's strike that took out this uh, reactor that was named Osirak uh, after the very name of uh, its national host, Iraq?
2: This is very interesting because on the surface, everybody was attacking Israel, all right? At first, the world was surprised first because they didn't pay much attention because France was involved in this, all right? So the U.S. knew nothing about this and it was not involved at any stage nothing so reagan all right he just got the message that the israeli did it and he didn't know what they did so they told them what they did and all the regime was against israel only one was supporting israel which was hague if you remember hague and Dave schlesinger and others and they were furious and they condemned israel the u.s itself so the u.n reacted badly and the EU talked sanctions. They said we must sanction Israel. But we the curtains, everybody was happy, of course. So uh, Begin told America and European that Israel will defend itself against any enemy and reminded them, of course, about the Holocaust and in a short period of time it was cooling down nobody did anything no sanction, nothing so this action on label america we must remember that america attacked baghdad in 1991 without this action of israel america could do nothing against saddam hussein nothing so the only problem is that iran learned the lessons of the attack for uh, its nuclear plan and Western, you know, uh, especially America, learned nothing. So,
0: this operation was called Operation Opera, and uh, related Israeli government statements that followed it uh, established what's called the Begin Doctrine, which explicitly stated the strike was not an anomaly but instead a precedent for every future government in Israel. And since then, has this doctrine had a major influence on how Israel is confronting the nuclear threat that's emanating from Iran today?
2: Yes, uh, the first evidence to this policy was in uh, 2007. All right, Israeli attack on the North Korean Syrian nuclear facility. It was in north east of Syria. All right, it was almost warming up. And America and Bush was against this. They knew about this. They got all the information from Earl Olmert. And Earl, Earl Olmert just, you know, was talking to uh, Bush, and Bush said, no way. And he said, okay, just uh, put the telephone and gave the order to attack it, you know. So later, it's Rabin, he stated that Israel is not going to be the first in using nuclear weapons in the Middle East. If you remember, it was later. Fakabin was later on, up 1996. So the nuclear weapon in the Samson option is a second or last resort. This is uh, an Israeli way. It's called the Samsonite option. So Iran is not uh, deterred by nuclear weapons, and it's ready to sacrifice millions for taking over the Middle East, destroying Israel and the U.S. This is a, a kind of ideology. And, of course, the Shiites... We must remember this. So Iran is a huge country, and they have about 87 million people. Most of them are not Persian. 60% are not Persian. 60% of Iran are not Persian, only 40%. So the Shia-Iranian regime is not considering Western thinking. It's a different way of thinking. So for that, you know, they the common mistake of the West is that the West media, especially, that they think that... The Iranian people and the mullahs are thinking the same like the Westerns. They have the same way of thinking, but in the Middle East, it's like the Middle East. And these people are not even Arabs, all right? They're not even Arabs. So Obama deal uh, just gave money and time and stopped nothing, just nothing. And Bibi knows it, all right. Bibi knows it quite well. And Bibi understands terror quite well. So the only question is what option he has, Bibi, what option he has as the prime minister and Israel and the Israeli forces, not only the Air Force. But Biden regime is ready to negotiate any deal behind the curtains, of course, including with Saudi Arabia who wants to develop nukes. And uh, Biden is ready even to give Saudi Arabia nukes. So what the difference between Saudi Arabia and Iran is not that much. Do you understand? Because both of them are extremists. We, we like Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia supports America on the surface support America, but not always support Israel. Though there are a lot of talks that Saudi Arabia is going to have a peace agreement with Israel. I hope that it will be, but we are not sure. But Biden needs any success to show on the 2024 elections and for this he can pay with Israel, you know, and this is a very, very serious matter yeah,
0: Of course, when Biden uh, came in, one of the uh, main tenets of his platform was that he was going to uh, reverse the uh, the sanctions on Iran and, and come up with uh, an agreement to, to uh, uh, replace what uh, Trump had uh, done, but uh, of course we haven't seen that happen. With um with the, um, this policy that Israel has of deliberate ambiguity, Israel denies, has been denying that it has any nuclear weapons. But uh, just uh, a few months ago, Ehud Barak opened his uh, big mouth and, uh, and made some statements that really uh, bothered a lot of people. Uh, why in the hell did uh, Barak speak in the way that he did?
2: Uh, first of all, it's not the first time that Israel says something about this. Erd is a bitter opponent of Bibi. He was BB commander, and suddenly Bibi is the Prime Minister, and he is getting out of the system. And Ed Barak is uh, thinking only about Erd Barak. It's, it's nothing to do with ideology. It's a problem with Erd himself. Now, I can go back to Golda Meir, if you remember in 1973, Brezhnev (laughs) told Israel that if Israel is going to attack any Arab state, Israel was attacked by Arab state, but he said if Israel is going to attack Arab state, he's going to use nukes on Tel Aviv. That's what he said. So Golda Meir went on the radio, and if you know the Babushka, she was a very strong lady, I really like her. Not what happened in 73, but I like her. She was a really great lady. And she said, Dear Mr. Brezhnev, the distance between Moscow and Tel Aviv is the same distance from Tel Aviv to Moscow, and that's it. And she gave orders, you know, to get ready, and you understand
0: for what. So what is Iran aiming to achieve in the MENA region? We're talking about... uh Middle East, North Africa, that that part of the world. What what are its uh, strategic ambitions uh, with uh, its program, its nuclear program? It says it's, it says in the public arena that it's only for peaceful purposes, but I think between the two of us, uh, we know that's really uh, not true.
2: Yeah, it's a it's, it's a great question, but Iran is thinking to rebuild the Persian Empire. Remember that they are Aryans. They're not Arabs. All right. They're Aryans. And it reminds you something so familiar. All right. With Hitler and other things. So they think to build an empire in the Middle East. All right. And a caliphate. Okay. So they want U.S. and Europeans. They see them as crusaders. If you remember crusaders were fighting Islam. Okay. They want them out, out of the Middle East. Now Israel is Jew. Jews are monkeys and dogs. So they can just kill them and no problem with this under islam it's not a problem do you understand so they don't have moralities in this case so they have a plan to make jerusalem and people are not talking about this this is out of research and a lot of work if i've done this so they have a plan to make a jerusalem as their western religious capital because jerusalem is a holy country holy state do you understand for islam as well it's the third but For the Shiites, they don't have Mecca as the center, do you understand? So they want to have Tehran to be the economical capital in the East, and Jerusalem to be the religious capital of the caliphate in the West. That's the main thing they do. They use the military relationship with Russia and the economical, military, political with China, okay? They have cooperation on nuclear and missile development with North Korea. People are not talking about North Korea, but North Korea is very present in Iran and all the missile, ballistic thing, and a lot of nuclear facility come from North Korea. And this is very uh, dangerous. I call it the axis of evil. So against Israel, they use proxies like in the North Hezbollah, in the South Hamas, and in the Red Sea, they use the Hittites, the Houthis as the ring of fire against Israel, and they are rearming them, and they are training them all the time. So in proximity to Sleepy Joe, I, I call the US now Sleepy Joe, they spread the venom to Venezuela, Cuba, and Brazil. And they have that's the octopus, that part of the octopus, and they attack shipping oil and goods, and they make international trade unsafe. This is part of what they did as Islam and the empire. They were doing the same thing. They had pirates and they send them to the, to the Indian Ocean and other places. And they take British and anybody who was in the area. So they use the terror tactics of Islam using undercover cells in the Western world. They have undercover cells even in America. And that's exactly how the Shiites took the Persian empire. And they did it 1,000 years
0: ago. If anybody's just tuned in, uh, I'm speaking with Michael Shamir, who's uh, uh, an expert on uh, Iran, uh, and he's uh, done or taught an extensive course on the subject, and we're delving into some of the uh, issues that uh, deal with uh, what's going on in Iran uh, as we speak. Can you tell us, please, Michael, about uh, the sanctions that have been imposed on Iran and are still standing, the sanctions coming from the United States and Europe? Have they had the desired effect of putting pressure on the Iranian regime? Uh,
2: the Iranian Shia regime doesn't feel the sanctions role. We must uh, d- uh, have differences between the regime and the people themselves. It's not the same. Iran is uh, the mullahs is one thing, and the people of Iran, the Persian, the Azerbaijanis, anybody, there are a lot of people over there. So it's different. It's the Iranian people who suffer economically, and they have a lot, a lot of pressure. They are being attacked, uh, like uh, from uh, uh, women, especially women are being attacked in the streets everywhere, because the women are the core of the Iranian people. Do you understand? The women, the women are stronger than the men and they are just trying to stand the regime so iran is selling oil on black market nobody's talking about this but iran doesn't have any effect she continues to to sell oil and uh, an armament and anything they wanted to china and other they're buying of course russia is buying so oil iran is selling weapons to russia don't forget this all the drones are coming from uh, Iran now and they are sending missiles to Russia because Russia is empty of uh, munition and they are speeding the nuclear weapons plant to 84% and it's the same facilities they can just go to 90% because people are thinking oh it's not 90% it's 90% 84% is 90% all right. And this was the, the UN found over there in uh, Iran. So they're dealing with U.S. behind the, the shades. Uh, they're talking diplomacy. All right. Biden needs Iran deal, as I told you before, for the 2024 elections. Now, assumption, which is I just checked for my, my researchers, Iran GDP is 60% of what it was in 2016. So 60% and they are just putting everything to weapons and to the regime and to destroy the people. All right. So 40% is the people, but they don't need the people. They don't really care about the people. So the people are trying to survive. That would happen. So they are more aggressive than ever before because of China and Russia's support. Before they didn't have China and Russia uh, before 2016. So they had to deal with America. And America had a great presence uh, till 2016. Then they decided to get out of of the Middle East, and uh, of course we have seen what happened in Afghanistan with the American, and they just fled over there, left 200 million of weapons, billion of weapons. Now North Korean is another force is giving missiles and nuclear material support. They have. Three big facilities over there for uh, producing missiles. Three huge facilities in Iran. And they are do- doing a lot of things that the world is thinking how North Korea is doing what is doing. And they, they are shooting missiles over Japan and this. Where they are doing this? Well, they are doing this in Iran and they're giving Iran whatever Iran needs. They are giving Iran and they buy oil. They buy, they get oil for missiles. Okay, So the Western world and U.S. don't practically support the Iranian people who write against the regime fighting for freedom. Israel is trying all the time to help uh, these people by sending messages on Facebook and other TikTok and other platforms. And the Iranian people know mainly, they know information from Israel for these groups who are helping the
0: Iranians. So you've alluded to the internal rebellion that uh, was initiated by, uh, by the women against the wearing of the hijab. Uh, how successful has this been in forcing the uh, mullahs in Iran to relax their hold that they have over the Iranian people?
2: As I told you uh, before, because we have pictures, pic- pictures are coming to the West. All right. Depends what US is doing. Biden is just mumbling something like he's mumbling about North Korea, like he's mumbling against China. And nobody is afraid of uh, America in the Middle East. So the West world and U.S. don't practically support these Iranian people who are, you know, they, they danger, you know, their life and everything and livelihood and are being tortured, murdered by the thousands. And in eight, 1988, people are not talking about 1988, they butchered 30,000 people in one month. 30,000 people were just opponents and women and anything. They just butchered them, took them, shot them, burned them, finished them. So the regime is during terror is a weapon, as I told before. This is part of any Islamic regime. Terror is part of the regime. They are using terror against the population. They did it 1,000 years ago in just trying to put Iran. Iran was not a Shiite. It was Zoroastrians. It was something else. They believed in one God and everything. It was a different state. So they destroyed it, and they forced people to be Shiites. The Jews were demis, so they had to pay money for their livelihood. And just being alive, they needed to pay money. And till lately, there was 100,000 Jews, by the way, in Iran. Now there are less than 10,000. Jews in Iran. So everybody who could go, get out just went out. So uh, besides this, Israeli organization, as I told you before, and it's not formal, it's not Israeli formal, it's just private organization. that trying all the time to help Iranians, and Iranians who fled from Iran, Jews and Israel helped them a lot, North America. But uh, Israel mainly helps them a lot, because Iran is uh, is the enemy. So that's, you know, the Mullah's regime is like the KGB. If you remember the KGB, they had, you know, uh, an informer on every corner. So these people have informers everywhere, including in the mosque, and people are obliged to go to the mosque. And women must go to the mosque and must wear the hijab. The hijab, otherwise that they can be even killed uh, in the streets. Okay. So this is the real situation. It's very sad for me because the Iranian people, basically, they're good people. The Iranian people are not, uh, they, they are not against the West. They are not against anybody. It's only the regime. And till the Shah was, and the Shah was cruel a little bit with them. But what happened that the mullahs took over by force and by terror. And now the people are trying to to get out of the situation. And we must help them. I mean, the the Western people must help these people. And they are good people for us as well.
0: Well, as we know, uh, there have been evil regimes and uh, they've uh, faced the music eventually. The KGB, uh, well, in the old Soviet Union, uh, uh, was dissolved. The... um We've seen uh, even in uh, Gaza that there have been protests lately with quite large numbers of people against uh, Hamas. So uh, the other aspect of what's going on in Iran is uh, there's uh, quite a, a large demographic shift in the population. I believe that uh, they only have uh, just slightly more than 1.6 uh, children are born for every woman in in the Iranian. Uh, Population, So the demographics uh, really are going against Iran as the population uh, ages uh, and they don't have uh, a young cohort to lead the country forward. Absolutely. Well, we've got no disagreement there, I, I guess, Michael. <laughs> yes. Good uh, luck. Good
2: <laughs> luck. Good luck for them. Just good <laughs> luck.
0: Yes. Uh, well, let's... Um, so let's 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 get, let's look at some tucklers here. What would you say uh, that uh, because uh, we know Iran is such a comprehensive threat, it requires we would say a comprehensive solution, meaning that Israel needs to recognise that the regime's leaders uh, are continuing to call for Israel's destruction, and they're not just mere words, and they continue to conduct ballistic missile tests, and we see evidence of that and they continue to fund and arm terrorists throughout the middle east through their uh, proxies and we see evidence of that we've seen hezbollah camping on uh, israel's northern border in uh, in very brazen uh, fashion so worst of all a nuclear iran would pose a direct danger to american interests and an existential threat to israel no so israel is at the forefront here of doing something about iran the americans are using Israel as uh, its front runner here, its front player. But what can Israel do in the way that Iran has uh, bunkered itself down to uh, prevent itself uh, from being attacked in any easy way?
2: All right. First of all, I want to remind you all that Iran has got a biological and chemical weapons. All right. They have long-range missiles. And they have probably enough materials for up to nine bombs. Saddam so Hussein was planning for three bombs because three bombs will kill something like 600,000 people in Israel and destroy the main cities. And that's the main aim, first of all, of Iran to do. Okay. So they have the materials. This is a, a legend that they don't have materials. They have materials. All right. So they need to develop or get from North Korea, Russia, some component because each bomb, each missile needs some devices. All right, so they developed high explosives, and uh, the UN founded they had uh, near Tehran a factory for very high explosives. It's not for rockets; it's for rockets sometimes, but it's mainly to to have uh, to to be in the chain of uh, of the nuclear facility. You know, of nuclear bomb needs to have the the chain running and the first they need the the explosive to get it and this is a special thing and they developed this all right and they can get any other like t- triggers and anything they can get it from north korea or from uh, russia so israel have some support from the u.s all right under biden it is a miracle that's what i think I think it's going to be a miracle. But so Israel is like before; she is left alone. So any operation like this will be very costly because of the multiple front Israel will have to face. It's not going to be a just hit of uh, Tehran or something. But I think that Israel must go first for Hezbollah and Hamas and uh, the Houthis. And do first a little bit of order in the backyards. That's the first thing. But otherwise, any, uh, any uh, reaction against Iran will be, uh, you know, uh, have some repercussions and for the backyards. And they can send 250,000 missiles against Israel from the north and from the south. This will be havoc for Israel. So Israel must think about this as well. So, but the Iranian situation is more complicated than it was uh, that we dealt in 1981, that I was part of this team, because any attack of this, it got some other repercussions, like it's a long range, it's not the same range that we had at that time to attack uh, Baghdad. And Baghdad was enough, enough. It was just at the edge of the F-16, plus uh, refueling or whatever, Uh, We have to do that. So in in this long range, we need much more than this. So we need American support or we need Azerbaijan or any other support. We need support. It's not going to be just that easy, this long range. But now Israel has got the F-35, the special F-35, so they can do some other thing. Deep in the ground targets. These targets, they've learned, these targets are below 60 meter deep. Even the Americans in the blockbusters, they don't add the rust bombs, you understand? I don't want to tell you what I would have done as a commander of the attackers, but Israel can can do something, all right? I'm not going to talk about what Israel can do in this. Every air defense, they have a lot, a lot of air defenses everywhere. And they have Chinese uh, control and command, they have the 300, all right, the S-300. Uh, Russians, and they have others, American ones, and they develop themselves from the hawks and other things that they had before. The the rangers are smart people. They know mathematics, and they teach mathematics. They, the special thing that they teach at high school is mathematics, and they are the best in high school in the world in mathematics, and people think that they are not smart. They are not Arabs. There are Aryans and there are different people. So many targets spread on the big country, which is a big, big problem. Let us say, if I had to plan this, you need to split the forces all the time, which is a problem. It's a problem not to stay together and split and then shoot and then run away, run away to anywhere. It doesn't matter where you run away. And they have a big military and air force bases. If you look at, at the bases of, of them, they have... Dozens and dozens of bases in the West, why they need in the West and not in the East against Pakistan. They they have only one base against Pakistan and all the rest are in the West because of Israel and because of maybe American forces in the Gulf, maybe. So, Israel has no international support. This is another thing that Israel will not have any support for anybody. Maybe, maybe from uh, the US, because they are doing a lot of drills together, but I'm not sure that Biden is going to do this, okay? Still, Israel has capabilities. We must not forget that Israel developed capabilities, like in my generation, this generation is developed this, but it must be very creative. I don't want to tell you what I think in creative, but Israel must be very, very creative, So, Israel can attack from the air, with airplanes, uh, from the sea, uh, with submarines and some other devices, missiles, and special forces. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what I know, what I think, but Israel has got the way. The only problem is that Israel is going to pay a price. This is going to be a price of submarines, special forces, and pilots.
0: Yeah, of course, uh, Israel can't wait for a strike from Iran. It would have to be some kind of uh, some some kind of preemptive measure. And We haven't mentioned, of course, the area of uh, cyber security. There's been uh, various uh, uh, things that have done to try and take out uh, some of the uh, the uh, the tech infrastructure that uh, Iran has uh, using Israel's uh, cyber security uh, weaponry. So uh, we, uh, we can only wait and see. And uh, I just uh, want to finish up with you. Uh, we've only got a couple of minutes. Uh, uh, Israel uh, faces threats from uh, Iran in many respects. We've spoken about the nuclear threat, but there have been over 50 terror plots globally against the Jews in recent years uh, as Israeli Defence Minister Yoav Gallant mentioned and uh, one of those uh, recently uh, took place in Cyprus and was foiled uh, according to uh, this uh, reports on it it's linked to Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps which is a branch of the Iranian army that is considered a terror organisation by several countries including the United States but not Australia so in Can you tell me in one minute, please, Michael, why has Australia not done this? And why has the UK also not done this to put a a blanket ban on uh, the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guards?
2: Uh, Australia and uh, the UK are part of uh, of the AUKUS as well. And I think that Australia under the Labour Party uh, is doing the wrong things. It's not ideology, it's ideology of this government and they are doing things that they shouldn't do. And they are planning for 2040 about uh, submarines and other illusion things which doesn't have to do anything. And I think it's not just a coincidence that UK and Australia are not doing anything about this. I I don't know what they are just gaining, maybe from China, maybe from other places. I don't think Australia is doing the right thing.
0: Well, it's been great having this conversation with you, and uh, maybe we should catch up again sometime. But uh, for those who have been listening, I've been speaking with Michael Shamir about the Iranian nuclear threat. Thank you very much for talking to me on the Israel Connection.
2: Thank you, David. See you again.
0: Until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection.